This episode is sponsored by Podcorn. With a niche podcast like Don't Tell the Babysitter Mom's Dead, there's not a huge pathway to making money. There just aren't a ton of advertisers that would fit with the tone of the show. And it's not a very smooth transition to go from talking about grief to then trying to sell you on a website service or a new mattress. Sorry your mom died, but do you know HelloFresh delivers right to your door? So I decided that if I was going to put ads on the podcast, that I'd have to be fully in control. And I was really lucky to join Podcorn. Podcorn is a marketplace that connects podcasters to sponsorship opportunities. Podcorn's mission to podcasters is to provide transparency, creative freedom, and full control on how and when we monetize our creative work, which is exactly what I needed for this show. On Podcorn's dashboard, I can choose opportunities that fit the show, set my own rates, and talk to brands directly. If you have a podcast and this sounds like something you'd be interested in, click the link in my show notes to sign up for Podcorn and start browsing sponsorship opportunities. Welcome back to another episode of Don't Tell the Babysitter Mom's Dead, a podcast hosted by me, Brittany Ashley, where once a month I interview a new guest who's lost their mother, and then we do a deep dive into a pop culture moment with authentic dead mom representation. It feels strange to put a trigger warning on a podcast that already is all about death, but I'd like to let anyone know that if you have trauma triggered by a conversation about suicide, including attempts and details, I want you to have that knowledge so you can make the best decision for yourself about whether to keep listening or not. I am keeping it rolling with interviewing another guest who lost their father, you know, really spreading my wings here. So this month I interviewed Sarah Warren, a writer and director turned therapist. We met at the dinner party which is a community of 20 and 30-somethings who have experienced loss coming together for a sweet old grief potluck. And Sarah is actually the fearless host of our group, so I admire her greatly. Sarah's father passed away a little over a year ago, and the cause of death was suicide. And I'd like to mention that death by suicide and using the passive voice, so to speak, is the preferred media standard but I think it varies by individual and Sarah prefers to use the active voice. So you can hear us chat about that here right before we get into Sarah's story. Died by suicide is the new, you know, correct way or what have you, but it's interesting because I'm very committed to saying committed. Um, That's my personal choice because of my anger, but it's interesting, right? Like the language and metaphor and so on used around death and how direct we speak about it and so on. And suicide. Yeah. It's a funny first thing to say, but my dad was, um, if we believe in diagnosis, which some people don't, but he had bipolar one, which is interesting because people say that's the cancer of the mental illnesses. The suicide rate's enormous, but you like to believe that your people or you will be the exception. But I raised that first because when you were asking the question, I was thinking about how he was bipolar in wonderful ways too, such as a city man and ran major um, corporations, which I'll discuss, but ethical ones, which is almost impossible now. And then was a farm guy, you know, so I grew up on a 200 acre farm. It's pretty extraordinary and very isolating. And he managed, you know, we built 
the entire rail fence, which spanned miles. And we had herfer heifer beef cows and ducks and all of this. So he's a real nature person and yet ran, you know, major companies. He was uh, the postmaster general for Canada and he wow. invented the uh, Santa Claus's postal code, which is pretty neat claim to fame. So H-O-H-O-H-O, ho, ho, ho. Oh my God, that's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> which is a spectacular thing in a dad. And he was um, six foot seven and had an ego to match. You know, and then he went on from there to run the Toronto Transit Commission, which would be, you know, running the New York Underground or something, running transportation. So he was very passionate about these things. And then his bipolar sort of came out. It's funny how mental illness is a come out experience, almost. It's mm -hmm. bizarre in terms of the stigma attached. And he went to universities and spoke about this and he was passionate about people understanding it. And then it really stood in the way of his career. He was offered CEO of, he was up for CEO of Canada Tire, which is like, I don't know, Home Depot um, or, and, and then Air Canada, running Air Canada. And he didn't get those positions because of being um, out with his mental illness. His mother was a painter whose husband was at war. He would always sing the war songs. This is what happens when you have a 50-year age gap with your dad. It's really interesting. And his mother had bipolar. So he had an understanding of this as a child. You know, he always said, well, my mother had bipolar and I have bipolar. And so he felt he had manic depression, which is now turned into bipolar. And God knows what it'll be next with the DSM. Maybe they'll be like, it doesn't exist. It was all capitalism. <laughs> so that that was always with him. He knew, I think, since he was 19, you know, that something was going on and sort of embraced therapy and medication and different programs like Landmark and all of that. My mom felt that he sort of charmed therapists and wasn't really doing the real work. Who knows? I talked to his psychiatrist at the end because I was like on everybody. It's like, what the fuck happened here? And one of the last things his psychiatrist told me is like, in the end, none of us knew him. He outsmarted us all. And I also remember the therapist, like this guy wearing like Tevas, which really bothered me to his funeral and looking sort of casual and having this like creepy Cheshire cat smile. I was like, what are you smiling about, buddy? So yeah, bipolar was always part of our family. It was living in the room. He told me to research it, to get to know it. The colors of my childhood with him were, it sounds like a California band, the colors of my childhood. It's Cheryl Crow's new album. <laughs> I was just thinking about her. Was, uh, you know, I was very, so we moved to the farm when I was four. I grew up in Toronto. I suppose in my telling of it, it's kind of bipolar too, because I simultaneously remember being 10 and thinking, what's my father's first name? Like I didn't quite remember because he was not around. And then I also remember him tucking me in, you know, when he was there and it was a whole thing. He voiced my teddy bear. He always stubbed his toe at the end of the bed, which is hysterical <laughs> that he didn't learn from that. He made a whole thing about it. He's like, God damn it, you know? <laughs> and it was very funny. And he did voices. He was emotional. He would cry and be like, isn't this a great day, you know? So he was sentimental, whereas the Scottish, my mom's side of the family did not have that openly, but at the same time he was gone. I mean, he had, he was hugely passionate about business and Canada is a place where you go on long car rides and those long car rides were him talking about business and money. And you know, it's funny when someone dies because there's a sainthood that happens to anyone dead. 
And I feel like I'm dishonoring him, but it's best to be honest, you know? There you go. Long yeah. answer. God, is this how she's going to be the whole time? Did you get any closer at all? Or was he just like throughout your childhood, just completely committed to work and then was able to tuck you in at night? Wow. It's funny because you think you've processed and you think you've done therapy and then a brilliant podcaster will ask you a question <laughs> that you're like, whoa, better cry later. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, it, it, I feel passionate about being clear about this, like growing up on an isolated farm, I mean, truly there was no one around. It was a 40 minute drive to, you know, the nearest anything. And the only distant neighbor was a sort of culty Christian camp, a very small. And my dogs one time escaped up there and like ate their lambs. And if you think about lamb of God and stuff, so that was the, this is the backdrop. It's symbolic. Yeah. yeah. But he made it great. Like we would do hide and seek on a 200 acre farm. You know, so it would take like six hours for him to find me and my friend. And he told me stories of the trees at the back, the witch tree and so on, which he hid things under and I'd go find. We tasted watercress from the bottom of the um, waterfall that we had. It was a tiny waterfall. It sounds epic, this property I'm describing. And so he went, the answer is like when he was there, he was there. He was present. Mm -hmm. We went motorcycling. We went snowmobiling. We had, as he would say, we had adventures, didn't we? And so the closeness was when he was there, but he was deeply troubled, you know, mentally. He was having an affair since the time I was born. He had a nine-year affair that was discovered when I was nine. Yeah, the mistress called at, I think it was midnight, the night before we were going on a trip to England, which is interesting because England features hugely in my life. I spent my 20s there. What? She's older than 20s? Shocking. <laughs> she called. My mom went upstairs, said, is it true? He said, it's true. And it was f two, three years of utter hell. Physical abuse, verbal abuse, mental abuse, like I couldn't, and I didn't know what was going on. So no one ever said, here's what happened. You know, we went to London still and they were fighting in the street. And I remember I went to as good as it gets sort of alone. I have a funny relationship with that movie. I think it's a great movie. And they, weirdly, I really fell in love with London, despite that being the ultimate turning point being there. I heard vicious, I mean, vicious darkness screaming from like someone's underbelly, like the worst kind of swearing rage. Every what's like worse than a C word? Like, I mean, just dark character attacks on and on and on. It was two, three years of wild fighting and abuse. And I don't want to say my dad sort of taking it because that makes it like woman crazy narratives, which I don't like to do either. But it was one direction and me staying at friends' houses and not knowing what was going on. On New Year's Eve, and it was snowy and strange, and I went down to Toronto, which is a three-hour drive from my farm, to stay with a friend. And I, I felt like I don't even like this friend. Why am I going here? This was years after we found out about the affair. And I got a, we got a call in the middle of the night that I had to come back up because my dad was in a coma. He had attempted suicide for the first time, overdosing on our dog's epileptic medication and chased it with three beers. So that is a very mysterious night. And I only saw his suicide note three years ago from when I was um, 10, 11. 
and he was in a coma for three months and lost like a hundred pounds. He was six foot seven. He had like a lot of weight. And then he came out of the coma. They got remarried, signed a financial marriage contract and sent me to boarding school. It did change everything in all the ways, you know, not that was kind of direct what I just told you, but it changed things in terms of sex. Um, obviously I wasn't like having sex at age 10, but in developing a sexual self and what that meant and safety and trust and unconditional love. I remember having an ice cream cone around that time and my mom's like, you know what everyone, all men think when you're eating that? It's just, it's sick, you know? You know, we watched Friends and my mom's like, who would you want to fuck, like to my dad? And, and he's like, oh, I, I, I don't want to, like, you know? And she's like, who would you want to fuck? Like it better, and he's like, well, Monica, cause she looks most like you, I guess, you know? Every time sex came on the screen, she'd leave the room and, and go upstairs. And so it was obviously tense. And I sat down and was their couple's counselor and told them to break up a bunch of times. <laughs> and um, I really couldn't understand why someone would stay. And she pulled all of the like, I'm staying for you stuff. And I don't mean to sound at all disrespectful of um, a woman's side of this. I can't imagine after a decade what that would be like to know that you were living this huge betrayal. But what I have learned in my life is that an affair is very complicated, whether it's wrong or not. And one time my waxing chick, and they always have amazing insights, said, is the worst thing a man could do to you cheat? And I was like, damn. You know, now that I'm becoming a narrative therapist, which is a very particular type of therapy, then affairs are so loaded and gendered, you know, and, you know, is this patriarchy, is this entitlement that men feel that they should have it all? So it is very layered and very complicated. The main thing is that my mom did not want a closeness between us, me and my dad, I think. And also when your dad has an affair, and that's revealed, it can take a long time to understand the meaning of that and to not just go evil man, um, because that's what my mom did. And she had the narratives of all men will do this. And I guess it was until I considered cheating on someone and then in fact did, you know, in some early relationships that I was like, oh, damn, you know, and then you start to see a multi-storied person. So it ebbed and flowed, but my mom was a roadblock. This is being really honest, you know, between my relationship with him forever. And then in the last year of his life, we became remarkably close. They separated suddenly and very dramatically in June 2018. And uh, we became sort of best friends. He said at my wedding, now divorced, but he said at my wedding, we're emotional co-conspirators, aren't we, Sarah? you know, in front of everyone. So we always had this bond and I really felt his mental and emotional life. And he never quite knew how in sync I was with that. So that's a tragic thing, but, but yeah, dear old boarding school, I don't, I didn't see any protective intentions from them. You know, when I came home from boarding school, they also sent me away to camp and then different educational things in the summer. So clearly my company was not entirely missed. And what a cool child I was. It's too bad. Class clown, shocking. But they did, you know, they wanted a great education that they can be credited with because I was in a really small town 
And uh, the best education there was a sort of uh, very Christian school where I remember I got beat up because I didn't know what God was. They're like, have you asked Jesus into your heart? And I was like, who's that? And who's his father? And what's the deal? And are they going to this school? They're like, no, they're in the sky. And so that was the whole thing. But yeah, so they I wanted got questions. <laughs> I did have questions. And so I went, um, I remember I was the sporty chick at boarding school and that was all I was good at really as a farm chick. And then I came home a few months later and I said to my dad, was Iraq Mesopotamia? And he's like, there's where my hard earned money is going. <laughs> <laughs> so I, you know, started off with a 62 average, I think there and being the head of the track team, which they called Harriers, how posh. And then I graduated with a 96 average and like won every award. And because my dad said every year, bring us home the hardware. And it was a very um, kind of elitist school that was trying to prep you for Oxford or like Trinity College at U of T. Afterwards, I went to University of Toronto. I did acting school there. It was a small program that starts with like 100 people and they kick people out every few months and year until you end up with about nine people your last year. I uh, made the cut, so to speak. And so I did acting training, but in a liberal arts kind of environment where I was still taking science classes and that's so what wasn't a conservatory. I still got a degree. And then I went to film school in the UK after that. And was your dad supportive of that? He was very funny and very him about it. So I made a feature film before I went to film school because I wanted to see what it would be like with no education. It's bizarre. But it was like when Miranda July was first, you know, pooing back and forth together. And I was very excited about this whole thing and experimental film and, um, you know, interdisciplinary practice. Because I worked with Atom, God forbid we say Adam, Atom Agoyan, who is our Canadian slash Armenian claim to fame. I did a course with him with just six of us. And so I got really into experimental film, you know. And so when I made that film, my dad would go up to the producer and say, is she any good? You know, like, is she like, what is she? What do you think of her? You think she has a future? You think you think you make any money with this? How many people are going to come to the opening? Like he was just the business guy and he didn't mean it in any harsh way, but it was pretty intense. Like now it's sort of charming to recall, but at the time it's like, why do you need validation that someone else? Slowly but surely he came around and ended up being very supportive with my debut feature film, MLE. You know, so he was interested in the business aspect of film. He definitely approved more of film than theater, where like your distant aunt comes and one other human off the street. And yeah. they're like, that was great. Like, you know, and you're like, it's an all female interpretation of Beckett. But if we were all mice and they're like, yeah, what is this? So he definitely caught on more with film. But I don't think he ever really took it or me as an entrepreneur or resourceful human seriously until he came to LA and see the life that I made here and managing taxes and an LLC and shit in three different countries, Canada, the UK, and then here and, you know, making films and making it happen. So I think, and my mom, again, sort of stood between that, I think, saying false things about me, which was difficult, simultaneously loving me and wanting to be close to me. So I wish I wish I'd made an awesome big film or could have spoken about him at an award 
thing. He went all around the festivals with MLE and I did win awards with that and so on, but it was an indie and I think it would have been really cool if he could have seen something big. I think he was proud I was becoming a therapist. That was mm. very meaningful to him. Yeah. And also there's the funny thing about people say like moms and daughters are competitive, but my dad was competitive with everybody. And so he probably kind of liked that I didn't fully make it big as a filmmaker too. That's <laughs> sort of really honest to say, but yeah. Going into 2018, it was really clear that my marriage was falling apart. God, it sounds so cliche. You never think you're going to be this person. I went to them for help, which I didn't ever really do. And it was, oh man, so much. So when I went to them for help in about June at a family wedding, and it was an enormously difficult decision. Like I'd built a life with my ex. We're still friends. We share two dogs. You know, it was so terrifying and affected me physically. And I didn't know what love meant or why or why not to stay with someone. All these questions. And they, my parents sort of said, we don't know if we'll help. And you know, support that change and all of that. And then two days later, I get a phone call from my mom that was very cryptic as per usual. Your dad swore at me or something like this. And then phone call from him. And, you know, serial, were you into that? Oh, yeah. Did you listen? Yeah, that's what it felt like for seven months every day for about three hours. It's wild that I could fit in that time. But not knowing who was right, who was wrong, he hit me. I would have never hit her. Hi, Sarah, this is your father calling from jail. Uh, okay. You know, 81-year-old father with like a, an on and off cane in jail without underpants and like none of his medication. Then living in a motel all summer. So you can see like my personal life kind of went to the back burner because suddenly the forefront was my parents' relationship which was falling apart in a hugely dramatic and I if I may say deeply immature way I didn't know who to believe I also needed to stay in the states because I was at the final state of my green card and they kind of like test you they're like well how much do you like the states really you're going back to Canada for a wedding that's not cool so you have to stay in the states not go anywhere for a year which is actually really hard you know when your family is elsewhere and so on if someone gets sick you're screwed so if you leave the country, it starts again from day one. So I did decide to leave the country to see them. And it was very confusing. I was worried then about suicide. And he said, you know, she almost killed me the first time. We have to make sure she doesn't do it this time. Yikes. Also, no one can kill someone else but themselves. But still, I was just trying to get him a life, get him a printer and a laptop and all of these things because he was a businessman and losing dignity and the only thing he had left was his op-ed pieces because he wrote for major Canadian publications, the Globe and Mail, Toronto Star and so on. And he did this, you know, uh, twice a month at least. So we were talking every day. We came, became very close. I suppose I thought secretly, does he just like me now because he needs me? I'm, I'm being very like honest with you and my deep, my deeper thoughts. And he probably thought, does she just like me because she needs help in grad school suddenly? And neither, the answer to both of those questions is no. You know, we liked each other because we liked each other. But we talked every day on the phone for one, two hours. He came to visit me many times. I always celebrate Canadian Thanksgiving, which is an actual harvest season, these Americans. And it was beautiful. All friends, he made a speech, you know, October um, 2018. 
Then in the winter, it really started to go downhill. I felt very guilty because he came here and I could tell he wasn't happy here. And he had like a windowless apartment in West Hollywood. And I was like, oh, my God. Just to visit? To be with me for the winter to help me through my separation. But he couldn't really do that because he emotionally wasn't up for it. He needed a lot of help. He was an 81-year-old man. He would fall and have different issues and was away from his health care and was away from his new girlfriend, age-appropriate girlfriend. Um, <laughs> and so, and she came to visit and he would go back, but it was all really difficult. And we spent that Christmas with my ex and we were all aware that's our last Christmas. And, oh man, I didn't want to show him how much my life was falling apart because he's a really sensitive person and simultaneously really needed a dad. But when he went back to Canada, he seemed happier. He was with his partner. You know, he had his birthday. Then he had a fall. What they told me was a fall where he fractured his hip. And I didn't go to Canada because I thought it was okay. And he had his girlfriend and friends and so on. And he said, it's fine. And a week later, he killed himself in his beloved Mercedes. That day, I woke up in Northern California at a friend's house because I'd gone there for Greek Easter, which was like lamb on a stick kind of stuff. And that was a very small 14-hour kind of break because I was just about to direct a series, this like a web series. And even though I say web series, it was fairly serious with a decent budget and people flew in from New York City and Columbia and all over the world to make this. And that morning started with the main actress quitting. It was two leads and she was the writer, producer, actress. I, I just, I remember when I thought that was news, you know, and this was two years of work of the co-writer's life. And so that was, it, what, it is news. And we were back and forth and all these phone calls and I was talking to the family who I was with because they're film people too. And can you believe this? And what should I do? And, and contracts and, you know, just trying to, figure out what to do and this whole time that I was panicking and talking about bullshit film people and can you believe it and blah 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 my dad was deciding to take the foam off his crutches bring it downstairs sign out and smile to the nurses get his six foot seven ass into his Mercedes drive to his rental home stuff the foam into the exhaust and decide to close the garage door close his door and permanently leave us. It's a real sick feeling, that juxtaposition. And I think it's why I took a real step back from the film world, you know, in terms of all these questions. What's important? Your your rate, your stupid series about your dog, like I don't well, that seems pretty good actually, the dog thing. <laughs> but like I, you know, it's a really toxic place and there's only so many moonlights that are made and that are wonderful. You can understand maybe with that intersection how I felt the f industry was so toxic having that as a distracting backdrop when I could have been calling my dad or so that was what was happening and I got a phone as I was leaving their house to say farewell to Greek Easter I got a phone call from the hospital he was temporarily staying for his hip he had damaged his hip but that's because he overdosed and fell and all this and they said, your dad didn't come back for dinner, but you know him. He's probably out with his girlfriend and he's a charmer and he's cheeky and doesn't often come back and so on. And I called the girlfriend, no answer, called a bunch of, um, you know, different people that I could. And then I called my half brother who I hadn't spoken to in 20 years. I was like, I hope this is the right number. 
and no answer. And then I get on the plane to come back and 20,000 feet up in the air or what have you, I get a, I get signal out of nowhere. And it says from my half-brother, first text in 20 years, guess we'll both be seeing each other sooner than we both hoped. And then the signal cuts. And I'm sitting there just completely panicked, obviously, for the next few hours. We land and I get the voicemail that he's dead from my brother. I started convulsing and snot crying like I've never quite cried like that. It was truly like a whale, like what you picture a blue whale. Way less attractive than a blue whale. I'd love to see a blue whale. This is one of my life goals. And then the plane taxied forever. They just said, for some reason, we can't dock or whatever the hell it is. It's not a boat. And so it went around for about an hour and a half on this little local flight trapped in the plane and everyone's conversation started petering down because I couldn't help it. My crying was obviously that intense. So the whole plane was just packed with people and my whale crying. And I got up to get tissues from the back bathroom and the woman said, you will be arrested upon docking or what the fuck is it docking? God, someone will comment, please. And you cannot stand up. And I was like, my dad, 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 like literally that's how I talked for the next two days. I was like, uh, 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 uh. like it's just wild, you know, like what this pain does. And she went speechless and handed me a whole roll of toilet paper. And then I went back to my seat and was making different calls. And she handed me a Desani water, which I guess is like commodity grief help. I don't know. <laughs> And it's weird talking about this in a time where um, race, thank God, has come to the forefront, you know, white peeps, we have to keep it there. But I just want to say that at the beginning of this, I don't ever want to sound indulgent because all of this would be tenfold as like a person of color. And, you know, it just is in every interaction and booking a funeral place. And so I'm just really want to put that out there from my heart. I mean, every stage of it was hell. There was no one alive on planet Earth other than his girlfriend of a few months who liked him. You know, did, did she know him? Maybe. They seemed to have a deep bond. But I couldn't call anybody to talk about this man, to grieve this man. Everybody wants his fucking money. Everybody still wants his fucking money a year and a half later. It's not even a huge amount of money, but it's money. I found out or, uh, four hours ago my mom will be taking me to court because they did not divorce. You know, I got back and thought I was going to go on a date to Dave and Buster's. Turned out um, I was going to, you know, cry myself to sleep and um, yell at a coroner. So, yeah. And I called a friend. I was supposed to have a meet up with a very new friend the next day. And I was like, my, my, my dad, dad, dad died. And she's like, oh man, yeah, it's a horrible club to be in because her dad died. But it was very weird being sort of new to L.A., new, newly separated, just a month, you know, and not a lot of close friends. Where the fuck to turn? And nobody on earth who liked him because he was a complicated guy and he was banned from his community because my mom told everyone he beat her up. I don't think he did. I don't know for sure. The obituary was something I had never written. My half-brother called and said, well, you're going to be fucking writing that. I'm not going to do it. I can't do it. And I am a writer, and my dad had things he wanted to be said. The thing that my dad lived for was writing in the newspaper. So I thought, I better get the goddamn obituary right, you know? So 
I wrote from him, from his words, an honest obituary. He separated, he had a girlfriend. Just that sentence, separated, which is a fact. I didn't do it. You guys screwed up your own marriage. That honest fact made five people drop out of their speeches. Uh, the mayor of the town, ex-mayor of the town, write me huge hate mail three days after I found out my best friend, only family member now really, killed himself, saying like, you're a disgrace of a daughter and who would do that and it's despicable and life is for the living, not the dead and all of this. And everyone was pissed. Like it was very divisive, but it was the only word he had. Still can't put my head around it, but I guess it's like reputation or how, but it's like you separated for a year. My dad lived for these op-ed pieces. They were great. His last one was about angry white men, just like great stuff. And it's amazing. He's a feminist on Twitter at 81 years old. His final piece was not going anywhere. And he was, they always accepted his pieces. He was a regular and he had, he called it the Warren Report, like the Colbert Report. They called him and said, your wife has called us and told us about your battering and you being an abuser. And so we can't ever accept a piece of your work ever again. When that happened in about March, early April, I was, that, that did worry me because that's what he lived for. And I remember when he was in L.A., I said, what is happiness for you? Like, what makes you? He goes, a printer. We need to get a printer. And I want to get my emails sorted so that the right people get the Warren report. That's what he lived for. So it was purpose. He was a big man, you know, his, and very proud. And I thought, all of that means I have to get the obituary right. What he would want and the truth. Because he was kicked out of his home, kicked out of his marriage, and kicked out of his town. Here you go. There's the truth. It wasn't a fuck you. And, you know, people said to me, Sarah, death is not a place for revenge. And I thought, maybe it is, though. <laughs> and and it's his words. It's what he wanted. He asked for it. And it's nothing wrong. It's just one line that says the truth about what they did, separated. And my brother was mad, my other half-brother, because his children weren't uh, named in the obituary. And I was like, I've never written this. You have not called me. No one has offered to help me. No one is, like, my other half-brother didn't even call. Didn't even talk to me at the funeral. Who was my hero growing up and then abandoned me once my dad had the first attempted suicide. And I was like, you want your children's names in here when you haven't called me and you said that Michael, my dad, was not allowed to be a grandparent and never meet them? How the fuck am I supposed to know that? So that is a small slice of what that week was like. People pulling out of speeches, people shaming me, people, how dare you, you're the worst daughter that ever lived. I felt like I was a pretty good daughter that week. And, and you know, just as a final thing, it's how do you honor somebody in a space that you're not safe and they're not safe? It's the only, the way I can truly honor him was when I got back to L.A. and got an ice cream cone. Because that's his favorite thing. There's no way I could honor him as a businessman and, and my godfather, who I've never ever seen, came, you know, flew in and made it known about 16 times how he flew in. Oh, really? Did you fly in? Because you just told me six times. Um, flew in to give a great speech about my dad's legacy in Canada and his life and so on. They didn't talk and he didn't know him as a man. How do you honor somebody in a room of 140 people who are gossip hungry pricks? Very difficult. But I did it with a very subtle fuck you through the guise of love, never looking up. That's the kind of eulogy I gave. I lost my whole family 
you know, I didn't stay with my mom. I stayed in another town. I cannot believe her response today to, you know, I want to say my lawyer, but I can't afford one. So the state lawyer, I cannot believe it. This is going to go on for um, years and years and years. What he wanted, you know, some minimal help for my education, which I'm lucky to have, but that's not going to happen. You know, it's not, it, it's really, I can't believe it. I, I just, I can't get my mind around a mother, a half brother, a grandma who would not mind if I was homeless or not care what I'm doing or how I would survive so that they can have an extra hundred dollars. I, I can't, I can't fathom that, but I guess I should have because I had all the signs my whole life. You know, and this is like the part six, but I called my grandmother a couple of months later, surprised not to hear from her, not his mom, my mom's mom, because he has no uh, family alive, which is really sad. You know, he was an only child and the youngest of all the cousin groups and so on. I called my grandma and I said, how are you doing? And I haven't heard from you. How's it going? And she said, never call me again. You're not my family. Um, she's Scottish, so she was like, don't call back here. I could not fucking believe it. I could not believe it. My mom had, I guess, poisoned her mind and said, like, Sarah's stealing all my money, which couldn't be further from the truth. I had to, I lost my home in this. I had to temporarily leave grad school and have miraculously found a way to hang on. I have no idea what my financial future will hold. But she kind of poisoned her own mother's mind against me, and that relationship's been lost too. You know, and my grandma said things like, he, he attempted suicide before, it's what he wanted. So what's your issue? And, and it's strange because everyone asks me, well, didn't you know, and he's bipolar and he'd attempted before, but he'd attempted 23 years ago, you know, and you believe and you live in hope and it, it just never, because they said you were really shocked. I'm like, yeah, it was the biggest shock of my life. I'm still shocked every day. It's, it's truly wild. Although I just saw a meme of a, that said, that said, I wish I had a therapist that just said to me, wow, that's wild. And I was like, shit, that's me. That's literally <laughs> what I do all session with clients. But I think that's better than going like, yeah, so what do you, you know, cold and clinical. Some things yeah. are just wild. It's wild. I'm really curious about your thoughts on Dead to Me because I, man, I should have like watched it all in preparation for this, but I had to stop because I just couldn't um, get into it. Dead to Me is a dark comedy series created by Liz Feldman, a fellow out gay. The series follows recently widowed Jen, played by Christina Applegate, obviously as the name of my podcast would suggest, a uh, big Applegate fan. Her husband, Ted, just got killed by a hit-and-run driver, so Jen tries to navigate how to be a single mother and how to try to control her rage long enough to show expensive houses to rich people. Keter car. At a bereavement group for grieving spouses that Jen really doesn't want to go to, she meets sweet Judy, played by Linda Cardellini, who says that her fiancé died of a heart attack. Can I give you a hug? No. Throughout the first season, the two women grow closer through their grief and become good friends. And the beginning of the show illustrates how some dynamics stand out from the usual static of how people interact with you amidst grief. The show has a mystery element to it. There's twists, there's turns, there's Christina Applegate jamming to metal. But I will say that a criticism that Sarah and I both share is that unfortunately, even though Ted's death is the catalyst for the whole series, 
His death isn't given much weight, so it becomes a death, not a loss. In regards to building out Ted's story, Liz Feldman says in an interview with The Wrap, it was a conversation that we had in the writer's room and it was pretty quickly unanimous that we just weren't interested. This is Jen and Judy's story and I was hoping that you would be able to feel for her without needing to meet him. Which, of course, I can understand. And the show would have been watered down by a backstory of a character who we don't see. But however, in the same interview, Liz adds, I still feel strongly that we did the right thing because I've seen the presentation before of these idealized dead husbands or the idealized person that our hero has lost. And I thought it was so much more interesting to see through her eyes and experience it all through her, moment to moment, and not look at their past. Which again, I understand the thinking behind, but instead of making him the idealized dead husband slash dad, he kind of becomes a guy unworthy of being mourned. For instance, after Ted's death, there's a storyline where Jen discovers that he cheated on her with a younger woman, a woman that he also told that his own wife died, ironically. It's interesting how much Sarah talks about her own father as a multi-storied person. And because the writing of the show wants us to believe that Ted's affair should tarnish his legacy and dismiss Jen of any guilt she may feel for her place in the marriage, it doesn't leave room for us to see him as a multi-storied person. Because if we're not supposed to care about Ted, then there's a wedge placed between my sympathy for Jen and her sons. Because if the show doesn't want us to care about him, how can we care about their loss of him? By the time we get to season two, Ted dying is old news, an old plot point to get us from Jen to Judy. But in season two, to these kids, their dad is still dead, which unfortunately doesn't get touched on much despite it being any parentless kid's largest trauma. In season two, however, I was oddly moved by a surprising moment between two motherless daughters. Perez, a detective on the case of who killed Steve, Judy's ex-fiance, has been looming over Jen and Judy all season. Perez is getting closer and closer to finding Steve's killer, who just so happens to be Jen. In a moment of half self-defense, half culmination of anger, Jen kills Steve. But when the cops start to think that Jen's son killed Steve, Jen decides to turn herself in. On the drive to the police station, where we're assuming that Jen would get booked for confessing to a murder, Jen and Perez have this conversation. I'm pretty confident that nobody's going to take pity on the angry woman who attacked him. You don't know that. I don't know my kids are going to lose their mom. And I know I would fucking destroy me when I lost mine. When did your mom pass? When I was 19. I'm breast cancer. I lost my mom when I was young, too. Was she, was she sick? She was murdered. Oh, God. She was trying to protect me from my stepfather. She sounds like a good mom. She was. I miss her every day. Me, too. There's rarely moments in TV and film where motherless, fatherless, or parentless people can bond on their grief, usually because they're seen as these rare experiences that happen to superheroes and angsty teens, but it shows that there's an unspoken bond and camaraderie among people in the same awful club. Regarding season two, Feldman tells Variety, 
We started looking at Jen and Judy and asking ourselves, why are they the way they are? How did they turn out like this? And we started to analyze ourselves and get to the roots of our own personality flaws. And so much of our identities and the way in which we are shaped into people are an extension of the way we were treated by our own mothers, says Feldman. If so, yikes for me. Quote, there's a lot of conversation about what we were calling the mother wound, which was the imperfect relationship with a mother because no matter how much you love them or how hard our moms all try to be good parents, nobody's perfect and there's no getting it right. Maybe I'm overreaching with this backstory for Jen, but it's possible that we didn't know about her mom's death when she was 19 because she never talks about it. And anger and avoidance has historically been her reaction to death, which is exactly how she's been with Ted's. I mean, she never really talks about him and we never really hear about him again because it's her way to cope with loss. And maybe going to that grief group, meeting Judy to heal that maternal wound is her actual journey throughout the show. Not the one where she's trying to hide the fact that she killed her new boyfriend's twin brother who also happens to be her best friend's ex-fiance. I mean, I certainly know which storyline is more relatable to me. It is easier to be avoidant and therefore right avoidant. And to think that that would be a communal experience like or everybody's experience. And in terms of generally consuming, I think between being a graduate student of psychology and between my dad's suicide, I can't even touch horror. Like I recently watched One Cut of the Dead, which is a brilliant horror comedy and everyone should watch it, especially someone who makes film. But I can't touch it. I can't. Uh, you know, and it's funny because people watch films with me and they're like, but this is about a penguin in Antarctica. Like, they're like, this is triggering you? Yep, that's triggering me. Okay. So it was like endless triggers everywhere. You know, I had to really just watch kind of shit TV. If I walk away with any advice, do not watch Midsummer if you have a bipolar parent or your parent killed himself. Please, God. But at the same time, I thought captured it quite well. How she kept having these trippy memories of it and everywhere she went replaying it. And when people are laughing and having that, I was like, yes, that's exactly how I felt. But it wasn't helpful to then watch an old couple jump off a cliff and break their legs. I was like, Jesus Christ. Do you feel um, like you've been more careful and conscious about what you've been consuming? 100%. I will find out what we're doing. I will look up the trailer always. And, it, you know, it's loosening and relaxing my relationship with that. But there's a superhero girlfriend complex. There's a superhero woman complex that I face as a lady and as a Virgo, um, said facetiously, like, because I want to be cool and not be someone who's like, I don't watch. So I'm even like secretive about my sort of vegan stuff because I don't, oh, then you're that chick, LA therapist, pseudo actress, vegan, Jesus, that's a stereotype and a half you know so the accommodating part of women I don't want to say what I can and can't watch and so and the carer and helper in me who wants to be there for others I think has not been great at saying no I can't host you in LA next month because I'm still grieving kind of thing when you have a death in our culture it's stains you and then when it's a suicide it's I'm not saying we're, this is not oppression Olympics it's not but it stains you as well there's an additional stain it's not somebody watching their dad die of horrible cancer for three years that is just so I just want to make it really clear I don't think suicide or anything's worse it's all no shit. but I think it but, leaves um, like a stain on the people that they left behind or like they have to answer to things that people whose family members mm -hmm. died of natural causes or you know an accident 
I think it's different. Yeah. Like I think people feel more comfortable feeling bad or feeling sorry for, for people who lost a family member, not to suicide. We don't know how to talk to people who've lost someone to suicide. Exactly. And I can't thank you enough for having this because people don't know how to talk about it. And also, by the way, it's not me. I'm terrified to die. So do you understand that I didn't, you know, it's like I didn't kill myself. And it's also such a shame for him because everything's lost. I told you he invented Santa Claus's postal code. Right. When a person hears suicide, like that's all they see of that person. They're not able to... Like, as you had said before, see someone as a multifaceted person, I think. Yes. And then this is the part I kind of can't. This is if I haven't lost everybody by this point, then this is when it happens. But that's where the me too stuff can become complex as well, because I'm way over on the left going, thank God, time's up. But I simultaneously am experiencing a father who partially died through that being used if you understand what I'm saying, you know, when it's not when it's not what occurred from everything that we know. So that is really challenging. Like what happens when a when a good dude is or whatever good dude means is, you know, the, the multi storied parts of ourselves. I don't know, it's very complex in this moment. I, I do sometimes think it has to be just a clear nope, time's up doesn't matter if you know, and I'm I'm tend to be that person, but I'm simultaneously wrestling with this because of how it impacted my dad and how it was used. So it's very complicated because you also cheated and were not a good dad a lot of the time and not a great partner. So did somebody experience it as physical violence, even though it was infidelity? You know, so it's very, very layered and and in order to be taken seriously did a woman need to go it was physical violence so that i could finally feel their pain so that society could finally feel their pain so i see and i feel all of these sides but canada did not celebrate him because of that call to a newspaper he's just dead he's gone and nothing he ever did will have any historical or weight or be celebrated that feels very punishing to me some people get sainthood and some people don't. And, you know, sticking to the point here, I'm sorry for wondering, but in terms of suicide, that stamp is just so, it feels so archaic, like the stamp and the stain that that give, that that's, that, that is given to a person with that. Yeah. And I think to talk about suicide, we'd have to obviously like dismantle all the mental health problems and just like the way that our society has uh, contributed to stigmas and our value systems that are imposed upon us via like capitalism and stuff like to like recognize that it's something that we should talk about. It would also have to recognize that we contribute to a problem. That is so well said because this is the most, the thing I want to say most, which is when people go, it's not your fault. It wasn't, suicide wasn't, he chose. Did he choose? Or did my mom's phone call to the editors choose? Him being banished from a community choose? Looking in the mirror choose? His not being checked out anymore choose? His Mercedes being scratched choose? Society capitalism choose? On and on and on. It's all of our faults. I really 
so it does not comfort me when this could be my own personal relationship to uh, family suicide, but I do not feel comforted with the it's not your fault thing. Because my dad was really honest in those ways. I know if I asked him, he'd be like, it was a little bit, which is unfair, maybe. But I know he'd say, it was a little bit your fault. His girlfriend told me later, you know, he actually overdosed two weeks ago with the hip thing. He had attempted suicide. And I was hugely enraged because I didn't know that. And if I had known that, he could have been still alive. And I know it's easy to blame someone and you got to put your anger somewhere, but that seemed to me deeply irresponsible and especially someone who's studying psychology. And it's like, you call people when that happens. I came back to graduate school eight days after he died. It was shocking. I, I don't remember that entire quarter or really the last year, but we went into a two months of suicide planning. Every core, it just happened. And I wish to God I'd had that information before this but how to deal with a client with suicidal ideation. And just the, the ironies, you know, everyone says irony wrong. Yes, thank you, Atlantis. But it just the layers of all the dark, dark ironies that happened the two months after, six months after were uh, exhaustive. It was everywhere. Waiting for, waiting at the airport for Simon, who I told you about my dear friend to come be with me was suicide hotline posters everywhere. Massive, you know, it's, it, but it's that. It was everywhere. What was your decision to go back to school and to get your master's in psychology and want to pivot your career? Like, what was that decision like? And do you feel like it was inextricably intertwined with your relationship with your dad? Huh. Interesting. Um, uh, my ex's mother suddenly passed. Um, I did this commercial for uh, a company with a logo that's not an orange, <laughs> so you can't say it, uh, <laughs> in Italy. And then I went and taught in Egypt. It was a crazy month of traveling. Got back from Egypt and we found out that his mother had had a stroke and she was okay in recovering. But he, we said, go be with her and help the recovery. So he went and they're based in South Africa. So he was on the plane. Then I got the phone call that she died suddenly and it was unexpected because she was recovering and all that so when my ex was in Addis Ababa I had to when he had another flight ahead of him I had to say your mom died and then I got on a plane and when I was over there witnessing the crazy family dynamics and everything and they have this adopted black brother who is this incredible guy who sounds like Mandela and he has this amazing voice and incredible politics once he had like two pairs of shoes so we gave one away he's that guy but he and I saw each other very clearly and I went to bed one night and saw on Instagram a friend had gotten engaged I was sleeping in the basement of this house with his dad wailing upstairs and in a very difficult point in my own relationship, not very close to this family. This family was very broken. And seeing all my friends on Instagram having wonderful future potential, suddenly was hit with that feeling that I only ever had about a movie idea, that I'm, I want to be a therapist. And it felt like I could help people one-on-one. -on -one. I would no longer teach hideous, privileged, awful teenagers filmmaking who say things like, well, why can't I 
piss on a wall and make that my film. I'm like, because what's the beginning, middle and end? And what does your protagonist want? And they're like, that's my film. Screw you. And I'm on my period and I'm going to eat flaming hot Cheetos and you suck. Okay. Like, what if that wasn't my life and my income anymore? And my life and my income would be people who want help. And we can be in an intimate setting together where I can help them and, and be a woman with agency with her own money and career and, and not have to worry about this egotistical industry and have a, a more flexible relationship with this industry, not a dependent one and not a dependent relationship on men. So at four o'clock in the morning or what have you would hit me. And then the next day at breakfast, Sandiso, who was this, the guy I talked to about, the sort of adopted brother to that family, he's like, have you ever thought about being a psychologist? And I was like, this is so crazy that you just said that. So he really helped with that path. So it was more around the death of my ex's mom organizing that funeral, which was exactly a year before, exactly to the day that my dad died, writing the speech with his father, sitting with everyone, seeing this ability that I didn't know I had because everybody backed away, just like the dead to me writers, everybody <laughs> backed away and didn't want to deal with the dad and all of this. And I'm not judging that. They're the ones grieving. They lost their mom. But I was able to, in a way that the other partners weren't and the other distant members of the family and friends weren't, organize that and hear people. And I was like, maybe this is a thing. Fast forward to now where I sort of feel like I ought to have gone into environmental studies or help nature and animals because I'm a pretty big misanthrope. But I think that actually a misanthrope can make a pretty good therapist, weirdly. I don't think it needs to be someone who's the gives the best advice and who thinks that people are the shit because people are not. And that can help me be a clearer <laughs> therapist, I think. Because I know you said it was, was it my dad, but that's all in the backdrop, I'm sure. Because I've had to be aware of mental illness and being a very young child, people talking like your dad struggles with this and children's aid would come to my house. I mean, there's all these details. I was just very clear that there was sickness in my family from forever. So that definitely must have been in the backdrop. I've had a lot of partners with depression. And it's funny because my, my therapist told me a few sessions ago, because I always say, you know, but he had depression, but he had depression about my ex and about my dad. And, and then she said, he had depression, but he was also married. This is about my ex. And it's such a simple sentence that I never really realized, because I sort of thought mental illness was a wash for being responsible for anybody else's feelings, because that's what I came to know. And then reflecting in my writing, all of my screenplays, everything I've ever written, I only realized this after the death, that it was all about a girl trying to save her dad. One of my films in particular about a woman who can fly. Don't steal it. Uh, the Genesis story is like trying to save her dad from jumping off a building and so on. And so it's less of a heroic thing and more of a trying to hold your father. Now looking back through my writing and everything, it was subconsciously living there. And he had seasonal depression on top of it. So the winters were brutal, which is why he came to L.A. And it was, I don't know if you remember, but last winter was, I mean, there wasn't a day of sun. You know, so he was here. It was bitter cold. It was all, and I was thinking, and it's so funny to think, well, that's going to make someone kill themselves, the weather, but it really did not help. So in the winters, I would get really scared when I came back for the whole, like Christmas and so on. I would see him and really take it on. And I didn't quite realize how much I took it on until he um, died. I was going to say passed, but I'm like, screw that passive language. Um, till he died, till he croaked, till he killed himself in his Mercedes. 
So our group is, you know, we have some wine and, and it's similar age issues and so on. And people are moving and money and what am I going to do and partnerships and do I have a baby? The one that I'm part of is all ages and very formal and the host doesn't disclose at all because of this kind of psychology discourse or psych psychologist discourse where you don't know anything about me and I kind of talk like this and, you know, and so how are you feeling? So it couldn't be more different. And I'm the only one who's experienced a suicide death in that more formal grief group. So I do feel out of place there, but I just think they're great resources. And and it, it is amazing to hear someone else go, am I just broken forever? Or I hate people with parents. These are amazing statements to hear somebody else say. And you're like, I'm, you know, this is cliche, but I'm not alone. It's amazing. It, it really is. Or you know, and really dark things. And we do interesting exercises. And But but it's funny because it's like couples counseling. Like if you're not in the mood, you're like, should we do it today? You know, and sometimes you can not be in the mood to go to grief yeah. group and you think, well, I should do this. And th that sounds really rude to the people who have passed. I don't mean it that way. But sometimes you are trying to have a healthy relationship with distraction for a week or so. Yeah, or like if you're in a really light space, you don't want to potentially corrupt that in a way you know and in all these you and I share a group and in all these different grieving groups and grieving spaces there are no men and that's said with compassion not with blame yeah because that's a big problem where are men grieving totally. and then how are they helping anybody else grieve and I I think I told you I wanted to do a big study on grief in gay relationships, same-sex relationships, and grief in straight relationships. It's such a weird word, straight, but docking, passing, dead. Uh, you know, it's not like it's a Disney, it's a fairy tale if you're gay, but I think it's different for women grieving with women. I don't know. So the one-year anniversary was about two months ago. How did that day feel? What did you do? Were there any feelings that you were surprised by? Very surprised. I wanted to weirdly go back to Northern California where I found out and I wanted to be up there with my dogs and think for a bit. COVID was happening so that wasn't going to go on. There was a suggestion of a memorial over Zoom and it was everything the funeral could have been. It was my dearest, my chosen family on earth. It was like 10 people or something. And it was so meaningful. Everyone said how they knew me. We all watched the filmed eulogy. I got the word right this time. The eulogy from the funeral with loving people watching it as opposed to judgmental people watching it and talked about our different memories. Some of them had met my dad, some of them not. And it was all I can say, which is very deep and profound to me, but other people haven't sort of understood, is it was the only day of my life I wasn't hungry. <laughs> I really, truly um, never forget to eat and I'm in a constant state of thinking about snacks. And that was uh, the only day I wasn't hungry. And then I got drunk on tequila and uh, it doesn't take much, my God, tequila. And I danced disco, which was the only music he liked danced for like hours at night just that really like exhaustive chest pounding dancing in my apartment and it was weirdly a great day yeah 
in small every minute ways. Like I grab a plate from the cupboard and I think, was he dead when I bought this? No. Oh yeah, he was alive. So that is, that trickles through every moment that I have with material things and sort of in a tangible way from moment to moment. And I don't, that's very quiet stuff. I don't share that with anyone. So that is always there. He used to say when we went to restaurants, oh, great combinations. That was like the best that he could appreciate food was to say great combinations. And you'd be surprised how much that as an expression comes up with people like, oh, it's a great combination or, you know, someone throwing it away or a director on set, like, yeah, good combination. Like, it's just all these quiet ways that no one would know he's everywhere. So that is a more obvious way that it's impacting me. But it's changed the way I love, that I view love, that I view people, friends. My, it's changed my feminism weirdly. I think, again, studying psychology and this death, I mean, it's like my whole, and then being a narrative therapist in particular, which is all about examining discourse and power versus focusing on psychodynamic like diagnosis and blaming a mother which is funny because I've just been blaming my mother for <laughs> two hours but I, I I think the biggest thing that's changed is my relationship to magic I like to make that in my relationships in a real way as and I like to sustain it because I really find it disgusting how people get bored I find that the most gross thing about human beings like I'm bored I'm so bored and I know I get it I I get it I guess the biggest thing that's changed is I'm simultaneously not bored because I know we could evaporate at any moment. And also, I d but I simultaneously don't know about magic anymore. It's funny that Stephen Colbert is now going to come up for the second time, but he said about suicide, it makes you believe anything's possible and nothing is safe. And that really nailed it for me. Like, that is how I feel all the time now. I was a big fantasy person, for sure, because I made movies and I fell in epic love with people. And I just don't know about that now. I don't know if that's real, if it's a good goal, if it's fantasy. You know, I'm very nostalgic and sentimental and all these things. And I'm not sure if that is good anymore. You know, it's interesting. No one knows, but I have this veil between me and everybody. And a lot of people would describe that as depression. I don't feel depressed, but I feel, I guess, as a writer, now as a therapist, and then as someone who's ex experienced extreme loss of an entire family, brutally, I'm like, God, would I, could I ever be normal? Would I be an okay mom? It's all that kind of stuff. But sometimes something will slip out, like a really dark joke about what we're watching or a slightly not confrontational question, but a certain question. I'm like, God, I'm in pain. Given what you've been through the last year and two months, what do you want people to take away from like how we should talk about suicide? Here's what I've come to, and it'd be interesting to come at this again in like a year, or 10 years, hopefully we're around, is the number one thing is it just brutally sucks. To give someone that and to validate um, that as someone's experience, I think is so simple and never done. Just to sit with someone and like, this is the worst. This is this. And I, and I don't even so much mean suicide, but any kind of enormous pain, right? And losing a parent in general, like this brutally sucks. 
you know, instead of silver linings and all this other stuff, just like this is the absolute worst with someone, you know, then what we, we will steal from the woman who has not come back to our grief group yet. <laughs> she, she wants to come back. She wants to, um, who asked about the name that really hit me, you know, how did they die? That's just so gross. What? Can you, can you believe that's the most common question? I really think that choosing our questions and what we give power to less in how did they die and more in who were they is really special and the way that they actually live on. Um, and then linking that to the person who's still alive. Did they know you? Like Sarah, did they know your humor? Did your dad understand your humor? <laughs> you know, like, which is, we could call it humor. Probably no one's laughing. But um, that is... I love that. I think that's a really wonderful, empowering way to integrate the person who's lost, especially suicide. You don't know what to make of that person into the person who's still living and the connection between them, who they were. In saying that, I haven't been able to palette this as a thought yet, but I'll put it, put it out there, which is that suicide is as spontaneous as getting an ice cream cone. Like that might sound, what? who is this woman? But it's true. It's a spontaneous moment that is sometimes planned, usually not more than a couple of days or so. It can, like ideation and the plan is different, right? But the, the moment to choose the gun, the strap, the jump, the car, like that is as spontaneous as anything else. You know, choosing to not pick up when someone calls or whatever. It's, it's just another decision. It just happens to be that that's a fatal one. I don't know how I reconcile that as a sentence I just said, but it does feel important to put out there so that somebody doesn't make a whole meaning that doesn't destroy the whole person through that one act. I'm trying to do that, but it is very hard. Um, and then, as I said to you before, just as a final thought, like when people say it's not your fault, I think that might be individual for me. I'd be really curious to see what other people think about that, but that does not help me. Hearing it's not, it, it sort of doesn't, it doesn't, it doesn't a surface way, but it's, it's everybody's fault, just like you said. This society that we've created where everybody, no one's happy. Well, why is that? And also is happiness even the goal? But you know what I mean by happy, just settled, okay. Okay with being bored. Okay with being in a relationship they're not sure about. And then, there's <laughs> so much, but I did an amazing course on contemporary issues of aging. And obviously there's a huge, huge percentage of um, elderly people who commit suicide. And I, I think if I were an amazing human, I would go into elder psychology and help old people because I think that's just such a dignified pursuit. I don't have, that would be so triggering. I can't do that. But I do think that's the most beautiful act that a psychologist could do because child psychology, they have their whole life ahead of you. They're going to be 16 and come back and bring you a basket of cookies and be like, you were the best. But you help an old person, they're, go they're just dying. That what's what's the reward in that? But I think there's significant reward. But the other side of this is that my dad was in deep pain and wanted to die. So more conversations could be had around that. But the biggest thing is how you do it, how you say goodbye, how you make peace. Or are you going to cowardly wander off? I'm going to say it. It's not nice, but I'll say it. Are you going to just cowardly pull an Irish? You know, it's one thing to leave a party like that. It's another thing to leave a life like that. 
If you or someone you know is struggling with suicidal thoughts, you can call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-TALK or visit the website at www.suicidepreventionlifeline.org. Thank you for listening to this episode of Don't Tell the Babysitter Mom's Dead. If you want to find out more about Sarah Warren, you can go to her website at sarahwarrenfilm.com. I'll also put her film and TV series she's made on the Patreon for you to peruse, as well as lots of bonus content that didn't make the episode, including Sarah understandably ranting about Transparent the Musical. And if you're interested in joining the dinner party, I'll put up a link to that in the Patreon as well at patreon.com slash deadmomcast. I'm Brittany Ashley, and you can follow me at Brit27Ash or BrittanyAshleyFunny.com. The music is by Interstellar Sarah Michelle Geller, and the logo is by Christine Tuna.